From the silver screen to the GM screen, Never Say Die asks, what can we learn from movies to enhance our role-playing game experience? I'm Drew Meyer, gaming enthusiast. And I'm Rafe Telsch, film critic. And welcome to this special episode. It's, well, it's been a while since we recorded, but uh, we'll be getting back to the schedule soon. We hope that this special episode tides you over for another few weeks. Now, a few months back, we got a chance to interview the director of BMX Bandits, Brian Trenchard-Smith. The interview is coming up later in this episode. But first, Rafe, it's been a while since we've chatted. Have you watched any movies since last time we recorded that you'd recommend to me or our audience? Well, most of the movies that I've been watching lately have been introducing other people to movies that I love, like you know, stuff that's classic in my mind and how not to not to hype my other dead podcast, not dead coming another episode coming soon. But you know, how have you not seen this type movie? So I watched Labyrinth a couple of weeks ago, uh, specifically because a certain podcast I listened to selected it as a bad pick uh, for one of their episodes. And I, I had to, to, to watch it and defend it. I introduced my son to Blazing Saddles because he had never seen that. And then it's the holiday season, so getting into that with watching movies like, you know, Scrooged and Elf and the movie that you and I will never see eye to eye on, Love Actually, which is still part of my, I absolutely love uh, watching that as a holiday movie type movie. <laughs> How about you, Drew? What have you been watching? Biting your tongue to not make a comment about Love Actually. <laughs> I did pause Elf for this recording. We we were upstairs uh, sitting by a fire in the fireplace, oh. wrapping Christmas presents with Elf just starting. So we're getting into that Christmas spirit. Speaking of movies I have not seen, uh, in the next couple of days, I will be watching The Sound of Music for the very first time. I have never seen The Sound of Music. So I'm really looking forward to that. And and I think as our listeners may or may not know, uh, I have been... My goal now for every single year from now forward is to watch 52 movies, that's one a week, uh, that I have never seen. And uh, it, it part of that was inspired by your podcast. And part of it is just inspired by the fact that there's... As as someone who I I introduce myself as a gaming enthusiast, but I'm also a movie enthusiast. Right. I've watched a lot of films, but I am so ignorant in particular categories, and I'm trying to just better myself. And and uh, so uh, if I have to make one recommendation, it is going to be 1964's The Train, which I um, have not seen. And I hadn't either. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of new podcasts, and one of them recommended it, The Train as being uh, one of the best films they've ever seen. It's a John Frankenheimer film. So, of course, one of my favorite films of all time is The Manchurian Candidate from 1962. Oh, yeah. Great film. This is the follow-up. So, like, how do you follow up Manchurian Candidate? Rafe, I've only seen it once. And so <laughs> recency bias says I can't say that it's better than The Manchurian Candidate. Right. But I can't get the movie out of my mind. In fact, I think about it so often that I've started to collect other Frankenheimer films because it's not the only Frankenheimer film I saw for the first time. I saw Seconds recently, which is – I have a beautiful Criterion collection of that, and it, it was kind of mind-blowing. But I think Train is a, a much better film. Uh, it's mm. definitely a film that one day maybe we'll discuss because it has all the perfect setup for a really good one-shot role-playing game. It oh, is essentially nice. uh, in the last days of uh, the Nazi occupation of France, the French resistance has to stop a train filled with all the looted great works of art from being sent back to Berlin. 
Uh, and so it's a it's a great film. It's it's shot amazing. The script is amazing. The acting is really amazing. I I thought you were picking your next film for have not seen this. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> which I should add in. Uh, I didn't include it in my list, but I have watched a movie and recorded a conversation for that. So that that podcast is coming back very soon as well. Very cool. Very nice. Yeah. So that's that's my recommendation. I've watched probably since the last time you and I recorded. I've probably watched about seventy movies. Um, and so. Probably less than that, but it but it feels certainly like like it. Essentially, it's been grad school and movies. Uh, I, sh- I should follow that model because I do something similar during the summers because I have you know I'm a teacher. I have summer break. Uh, I do try to watch a movie a day during the summer and preferably something I have not seen before. And I usually make it through about a month of summer break of doing that, and then I break down and want to watch stuff that I have seen before. <laughs> so, But I, I saw a lot of good movies this past summer and kind of in that same mentality. Yeah, I think out of the 140 movies I've watched this year, only about 40 of them have been films I've seen before. Nice. Uh, and And admittedly, there are several instances where movies that I have watched for this podcast, I have watched on more than one occasion. I am counting those. You know, sure. I've I've watched, I may have watched BMX Bandits three times. I'm counting that as three separate movie watches, but, you know, it's only one instance of it being new to me. Oh, so okay. Forth. Yeah. Okay. You know, because watching, I will count Elf after uh, tonight as a movie watch, but it's not a new movie. Right. Um, my hope right. is to get at least two or three more in beforehand, and I've got a stack of about sixty movies that I've I'm already setting up. I have some very interesting social media watching goals for 2023, uh, and we can talk about that at another time. So nice, yeah. I've seen a preview of that stack of movies, some of which I know you've seen before. Yes, um, but yeah. Well, that most my most recent acquisition stack of uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. A lot of that was getting Blu-rays of, of movies because I'm starting to become that guy where the right. picture quality is starting to matter to me because uh, I've I've watched I, so many of these movies that I love. I've watched so much on VHS and my memory of it's super fuzzy. And, and this all came about from watching um, John Carpenter's The Thing on the big screen for its 40th anniversary this summer and just noticing the detail. Sure. Because it's a, you know it's a new print and it's really cleaned up and there was stuff that I hadn't seen before and I was like this is ridiculous why am I bothering with low res and so every time one of these Blu-ray uh, distributors have a sale like Kino Lober just had a sale and I just bought a, a bunch of stuff from them some some stuff I had seen before and a lot of new stuff that you can only get uh, because right. as great as YouTube is uh, not the best quality no no well Drew October. <laughs> two months ago, uh, marked our first anniversary, and we had plans to jump back into a regular recording schedule, but uh, life happened, and happened, and and happened. And then it um, happened again, I happen yeah, to know. Right, yeah. so, so we're going to discuss the future of the podcast on our next episode. So yes, there will be a next episode. And no, it is not the future of the podcast as in like we're shutting the doors. We're going to talk about the plans that we have for the future, uh, which would be our BMX Bandit's intermission episode, because that is the last movie that we discussed on this podcast. Uh, In addition to that, we'll discuss the wildly successful Kids on Bikes second edition RPG Kickstarter that ended in early November, and our role in the playtesting of that edition, and what you can expect to find in the new book. And if you go back and listen to the last couple of movies we talked about, there was some biting our tongues because of (laughs) NDAs, uh, where stuff tied into stuff we wanted to talk about. So expect to have a a lengthy conversation on that. But for now, we're going to get into our interview with Brian Trenchard-Smith, who directed BMX Bandit's The 
the last movie that we discussed. We held this interview with uh, Mr. Smith in August via Zoom. We do discuss both of Brian's Kids on Bikes films and a whole slew of other topics. It was an incredible treat to talk to this filmmaker, and we hope you enjoy it. This is the Adventures in the B-Movie trade, and this is not the color, full-color edition, but if anybody wants it, uh, I, I recommend the full-color edition as uh, a good coffee table book that will amuse your guests while you prepare their food. Anyway, nice. So. Do you remember what it was like to have guests, Rafe? <laughs> remember, remember, how, yes. remember what it was like to feel safe to have people over in your home? <laughs> no, it's a problem. It's a problem. Okay, well, to business, gentlemen. Uh, what do you want to know? Well, your your book is Adventures in B-Movies. Let's start with, to you, what is a B-Movie? Well, you see, I think B-Movie is a bit of a misnomer, really. I mean, it was originally meant to represent the the more generic and lesser uh, and cheaper, you know, second heart of the double bill. But sometimes these movies had a, you know, a, a, a unique quality of their own and they stood the test of time in a way and everything from you know, edward g ulmer's films in the late 40s and early 50s uh, which were made on shoestring budgets but were highly imaginative given the uh, uh, you know restrictions economic restrictions so and also the 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 b movie tended to be it would get that label because it was possibly had less script rigor and it had lesser known stars not a list but b list right sometimes c list and even the d list <laughs> but really all films whether they're big studio pictures or independently made b movies yeah require a lot of work a lot of people work hard to make them and they always try to make them as well as they can they don't you know, i i don't know of anyone who says ah it's good enough yeah well yeah, I suppose there have been some producers who've said that. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 a director is, is is fighting for quality till the last moment. Uh, and I've been both a producer and a director and I'm frequently fighting with myself. Uh, <laughs> a, a schizoid relationship to be a producer-director. So you kind of just, just answered this talking about the hard work and stuff, but do you... Do you genuinely see yourself as like a B movie director or a, a director of B movies? Is that how you would categorize yourself? I wouldn't categorize myself that way. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would say I'm a slightly quirky auteur with some skills in stretching a dollar. Uh, but these are things that uh, are necessary if, when you make B movies. No, I mean I'm I'm probably thought of as a B movie director or cult director and I'm, I'm i'm happy for both uh both labels and uh but but in truth i'm just a uh, someone who was either born with or caught early the filmmaking virus and uh you sort of once it's in the blood it never leaves you you know and uh, um, i always wanted to make films uh and that ambition crystallized when i saw alfred hitchcock's vertigo uh double build with uh, a Rory Calhoun Western, Four Guns to the Border, um, which incidentally co-starred Nina Fosh, who uh, was my, uh, who I took a course of 
uh, acting, uh, an acting course with her uh, to learn more about the actor's problems. So as a director, I could, um, you know, be more helpful. So it's, it's interesting in late in life, you look at all these little connections uh, that you, you didn't realize that you had or would have. So there I was watching Nina Fosh dealing with pretty ghastly dialogue. Um, I mean, you, you, she was in the Ten Commandments. She was in many things. Uh, and in her final, you know, late years, she was a drama coach. And so I, I, I was one of a class of 12, including Barry Manilow, who actually has a flair for comedy. Uh, <laughs> that does not surprise me. Funny <laughs> guy. Uh, and uh, so, um, yeah, uh, anyway, it was a, 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 a good class. I don't think it made a good actor out of me because I, well, I, I think I do a reasonably good job of um, imperson of, of impersonating, you know, John Cleese directing a movie. Um, <laughs> I, I can do that. But um, uh, anyway, I did learn a bit about the actor's problem, and that was, I, I think, helpful to me. And uh, I did that in God, 79, 1979, back in the Stone Age before you were born. Um, Not before we were born. <laughs> you're looking young. <laughs> well, thank you. Do you feel that taking acting classes helped you in your relationship with actors? I think it helped a little. I, I, I came to realize that you know, an, an, an actor has to be a good detective. He has to search for clues that may not be in the script, but if he formulates he or she does not be guilty of pronoun crime here. But um, if he or she can't find the immediate uh, motivation, let's say, in the script page uh, or in the totality of the script, obviously the director is going to help. But initially, I think the actor has to create a character so that the actor can create a backstory for that character, which can then motivate some of the twists and turns that that character yeah, undergoes in the course of uh, the, the film. So, I mean, obviously, uh, writers and directors create flashbacks to provide backstory. But as an actor, if you're looking for something that distinguishes the character in some way or supports the qualities or the failings that they might be displaying in the drama, then you look for little things uh, that can add some texture and so you have to create a backstory for that. Is this someone who is struggling to give up smoking? Generally, that kind of obstacle for the, the, the hero is built into the script. But, you know, this is something that a, a, an actor could come to me and say, I, I, get, I have it pretty easy through a, a lot of this. What if, in addition to all the problems that are being thrown at me, uh, I'm, I'm just in the first couple of days of giving up smoking and it's f***ing terrible. So why don't I play with a little bit of that angst and I've got to have a, you know, I've got to have a moment or two uh, uh, to show the audience that that's what it's about. Now, obviously, you, you see many a film where uh, actors are reaching for the whiskey bottle and the hand shakes. And, you know, I, we can have a litany of cliches here. Um, <laughs> I just I that one out of my ass, so to speak, uh, in order to uh, just give a, a simple explanation. But. I don't profess to be the you know, best director of actors in the world, but I, what I try to do when I'm making a movie with cast and crew, that with, with the cast or particularly, is to infect everybody with my own enthusiasm for the project. Uh, and uh, 
get them all excited by what is exciting me and by how the day's work can be exciting. And, you know, trekking 200 yards up that hill to get a really good shot, um, you will like, you know, the setting for your scene um, and it's worth the journey uh, and, uh, and so forth. So if, if a director's job is to carry everyone along a, a, an obstacle strewn path with you know as much enthusiasm as possible and uh, that's what i try to do and so as director i'm sort of well you know i'm team leader or sergeant major well i suppose we i have a first assistant director for that but i, I can be vocal <laughs> too uh, but um but always in a nice way uh i'm always the good guy but uh, i think that that's the way a movie works best uh and uh, I, you know, as I enjoy the process, I want all around me to enjoy the process. And then hopefully the audience will enjoy the result. Specifically, I'm curious about your direction and working with young actors, because the podcast that we do is this the season. We're talking about movies that are about kids on bikes mm -hmm. that um, kind of started in the 80s, that kid ventures movies, but certainly BMX Bandits and uh, what I guess I grew up calling The Quest, but was originally called Frog Dreaming or, or The Go Kids. Mm -hmm. What is it like working with child actors or teen actors versus uh, adults? Or, or just more actually just specifically working with just young actors? Uh, uh, well, you know, I, I've always had a good time with young actors, with children. Um, and I think the, the kids' films that I've made both of which have won minor awards, uh, or I guess in the case of Frog Dreaming, it was a minor prize <laughs> at the Montreal Children's Film Festival. Um, and uh, you know, if there'd been a bit more weight behind it, I think it would have, uh, you know, it should have worked that that circuit uh, a lot more. But uh, it's taken a while for Frog Dreaming to be discovered, or the Quest, as as it was called in the U.S. And how, how what do you call it? Just out of curiosity. Well, we we always known it as, as frog dreaming, but we recognised that that's what that's whatever the Roche wanted to call it, and he he wanted Aboriginal, uh, you know, Dreamtime culture represented in an Australian film in an in an accessible way, and I was all in favour of that and did whatever I could to to amplify it uh, and to represent it, and yeah, we we had advice from Aboriginal communities, therefore frog dreaming. While it was a non-commercial title, commercial a title that actually hurt the movie, <laughs> it was nonetheless a, a brave and noble title. Uh, but uh, even in Australia, people didn't quite know, unfortunately, and that that says something about the Australia of the uh, 1980s. Didn't know a lot about Aboriginal culture, and uh, that 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 has improved a great deal uh, in, in the intervening years. So the dreaming didn't immediately resonate. And obviously that was far too complicated for an American audience to understand. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm, look, I'm glad you know, that it got a release at the time, of course, when Miramax hadn't been bought by Disney and, uh, and didn't have the kind of booking clout along the, the American uh, theater chains that it might have later. And so it booked a had to book. But it's basically a kid's film outside of school holiday time. Now, uh, in Australia, the dim-witted distributor 
um, or his the dim-witted executives at the distributor at the time, let me be specifically insulting, uh, <laughs> uh, chose to release it outside of well they they put it in school holidays but they the christmas would have been the best time it would have had it had six weeks to play off uh and it it would have built because it is a word of mouth movie as you can see from all the reviews and all the people who said i wore out a vhs of this movie and i would see this oh you're guilty as charged okay i love it uh but uh they they could have brought Henry Thomas uh, to Australia for the publicity, and he loved Australia and would have come, but they decided, well, do we really want to spend that kind of money, you know, the first-class airfare for him and his mother in a hotel? You know, and it's a film that's really only going to play, if it plays well, um, before 7 o'clock at night. So they made the pragmatic economic decision, just like cancelling Batgirl. Uh, We'll make more money on the tax write-off. No, not that they were going to get a tax write-off for for Frog Dreaming, but they just thought, no, it's only going to make so much or so little money. Uh, Let's not throw any more after it than a a regular campaign with some press ads and some TV spots. And the TV spots did have a bit of BMX in them, and they knew that BMX still had a following, and BMX Matters had done extremely well in 19, Christmas 1983, which is why they should have released this in Christmas you know, 1986. Um, but uh, uh, they didn't. And as a result, the picture earned $187,000 in a dismal release. So uh, they didn't get it. They, they didn't get the movie. Somehow it, it didn't resonate with the inner child of the distribution and publicity executives. Uh, let me say that. Uh, and therefore, they didn't put their weight behind it. They, they have inner children? So, <laughs> I think we all have inner children. I, mine is extremely visible at all times. Um, I, I think it's essential to be in touch with your inner child uh, because you then have a more balanced view of life. Um, Adults try to beat the inner child out of the child to make them an adult. Uh, but really, if you want to be a fully-fledged adult, you have to allow your inner child to flower. But, yeah, that's just me. So I, I, when I asked you about uh, uh, what you call it, I, I guess I interrupted Drew's question, which was direction for kids. How do you, how do you handle um, directing younger actors? Well, with pleasure. You see, they're very open. Uh, they may be a little scared of... The, yeah, particularly the first time in front of a camera, oh my God. You know? But you do whatever you can to put them at their ease and don't treat them like children. Treat them as um, young adults. They're fellow adults and you don't talk down to them. You say, you're a professional, I'm a professional. It doesn't matter if you're 8, 12, whatever, and I'm 103, uh, but we're both adults on this plane of, of filmmaking, I'm I'm the boss, but let me help you find what you need uh, for this. Yeah. And uh, kids have good dramatic instincts. You know, they play act all the time. So sometimes the best thing to do with a child actor is, you know, don't interrupt uh, or don't, you know, don't give them specific directions unless there's something specifically wrong. Um, you know, let them feel free. And that's what Henry Thomas asked me when I took over Frog Dreaming uh, 
and basically, and I, I reshot all but two and a half minutes of it because you know things happened, and uh, I was asked to take over. And Henry said, "Well, if I make a suggestion, will about what I could do in a scene or how I could move in a scene, uh, will you listen or will you just treat me like a kid?" And I said, "No, I won't do that. I'm going to treat you like you know." You're my lead violin, and I'm your conductor. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, a director is a conductor of fine instruments. The actors all bring incredible acting instincts, and, and, and in many cases, a lot of training uh, to to you know the day. And so you just conduct them and just adjust them where they need to be adjusted. And sometimes they can come up with a totally new idea. Uh, or a, an, a, a new interpretation to uh, a scene. I mean, Henry didn't make that many suggestions, but there was, you know, one time, you know, you know, relatively soon after we met and started reshooting, when he said, you know what I think would be f effective in this scene? Instead of me being here and you then doing a close up, you know, here's a man who's been directed by Spielberg. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 why don't I move forward and make my own close-up, which is a very Spielbergian habit? Uh, and I said, hey, works for me. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, it, it's that kind of collaborative relationship with the actor uh, that yeah, fills me with joy and uh, is is good for the product. I'm kind of curious. Cody Walpole's a very unflappable character like he takes a lot of what happens in that film in stride i'm just kind of curious if if there was uh, written into the script who he was as a character or if it was something that you and henry came up with no i think it was built into everett deroche's script okay cody is an adventurer he's the kid that wants to discover stuff to explore stuff and you know being pre is prepared to bump his toes and graze his knees uh in order to do stuff and of course in, in a way, risk his life, uh, which, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, kids who you know, don't necessarily look first before they act uh, can do. Uh, but, you know, I, I think kids should be allowed to be adventurous, but, you know, with you know, a, a bit of parental supervision. But uh, Cody Walpole is, you know, the, the kind of kid that I think Everett DeRoche grew up being, and he had six kids of his own after he he left us America so he wouldn't be drafted and uh, found a totally different career uh, as, as a writer and then uh, in, in Australia initially for television and then uh, features. And they wrote many of many great Australian films of the 70s and 80s. Uh, but this was the kind of kid he probably was and the kind of kids that he was raising uh, as, a, as a father of six with, with his wife. I'm going to go back to BMX Bandits for, for, for a moment because this is one that we just finished reviewing for our podcast. And we've been talking a lot about BMX Bandits for the better part of uh, the last couple of weeks. And I'm just kind of curious what kind of a change it was. Like what inspired you to take on that project? Because a lot of the films leading up to that were very adult, very violent films. And now you have this chance to work with kids, a kid's action-packed chase sequence, a lot of stunts. Uh, I mean, just the just kids on screens the, the entire time. I'm kind of curious, like, what got you into the project and what it was like to maybe make that transition? Well, I um, have always been in my head 
multi-generic. I mean, I grew up on a wide variety of genres, everything. I, I was an, as much of an omnivore cinema goer as a, a, a kid could be who was at boarding school and where you were not allowed to go to the halls of public entertainment. I naturally obeyed those rules. And, uh, uh, and in fact, I was the shortest lived prefect at Wellington College. I was a prefect <laughs> for 20 minutes which is the first 20 minutes of my arrival back for the new term and my first my appointment as you know, a prefect in the in the holidays they had discovered that I had been borrowing bicycles during the school term uh, somebody ratted me out uh, and had been bicycling to nearby movie houses um, to see things like you know Lancelot and Guinevere and uh, Billy Liar uh, yeah, there's two two totally different things: Hollywood uh, and uh, British early social realism. So I, I had a I had a wide appetite. Anyway, so uh, therefore uh, I approached my movie career with a you know, actually a fairly simple rule uh, that I never you know I never met a green light that I didn't like. And uh, after making Turkey Shoot, which was extremely violent uh, and somewhat socially subversive uh, and was vilified by the Australian arts culture elite because um, the producer, blessed him, had made the mistake of, well, nah, maybe not the mistake, uh, of showing the film or entering the film for the Australian Film Institute Awards, uh, which you know uh, the film institute members felt was you know they were looking for high-minded australian films and they did not see turkey shoot as a high-minded australian <laughs> film. and they found a level of black humor uh sexism uh and violence um all of which is being subordinated to a a, a critique of totalitarian society if it can get control of your uh country oh yes lessons for us there actually uh, people should look at Turkey Shoot now. <laughs> you know how how similar certain political philosophies are to the camp commandant's words: "Freedom is obedience. Obedience is work. Work is life." Yes, vote Republican. Uh, anyway, so um, how many more people can I offend with this podcast? <laughs> uh, but, just keep them coming. You just keep them coming. Okay. Uh, no, well, I look. Uh, I, I'm really talking about Republican extremes. There's a lot more middle ground in American politics. Uh, a lot more, you know, Democrats and get uh, and, and, and and Republicans who actually, you know, they all really want the same things. But uh, the game, well, the, the mechanism whereby the country can be served has been taken over by this uh, increasingly corroded political system which has now just become a game of gotcha one-upmanship and uh, my side wins at all times you know so which is not actually good for the people but anyway enough of me on the soapbox uh, but uh, what does he know he's just a moving uh, <laughs> well, i've lived all over the world i've seen societies all sorts of societies and uh, i've even spent a couple of days in russia Anyway, we can read about my Russian exploit in uh, in Adventures in the B Movie Trade. Yes, <laughs> okay, you know, but uh, but you know, if 
anyone is interested in how you know in getting into the film business is at least a, a historical record uh, but uh, yes adventures in russia trying to persuade russian customs and immigration officials that the 35 millimeter print of my trailer for day of the land grabber um, was not actually uh, a subversive film and trying to explain a western to them including you know because they didn't speak english and i i i, I was going bang bang and drawing bows and arrows and showing them what the, an opening frame of the trailer uh anyway oh also it, it, it's life is full of interesting adventures uh, and uh, luckily the soviet officials were this was 1970 um uh they were yeah they ultimately thought that i was some mad foreigner and they didn't want the paperwork uh so i i i i was allowed to leave um, <laughs> Incidentally, yeah, things were on the subject of Russia, which is not really what you came to ask me about. At all. <laughs> I can tell you anyway. Uh, I had two interesting things. I went to the in tourist office to get uh, advice as to how I could buy tickets to the uh, Russian uh, circus, where I would see brown bears riding motorcycles. And they told me they spoke English very well there, and they said the only Life magazine that has ever been allowed in Soviet Russia in 1970 was the Life magazine, which had a spread of the Sharon Tate murders. Wow. And this was, well, you know, if, if there's one side of America we want Russians to see, this is it. Uh, and the other thing, uh, you know, I, I paid for taxi fares with ballpoint pens, uh, and they said the only Bond movie to be allowed in Russia was Goldfinger because the villain was a Jew. So anyway, little factoids about Russia that I gleaned wow. along my journeys. Uh, and it's those kind of things that have, I suppose they influenced, uh, they, well, they have their bearing, let's say, on, on my work um, and my books. Uh, so anyway, uh, so I wandered off your point uh, or your question. So can you try again? I think it was basically what it is like to go from something like Turkey Shoot to BMX Bandits. Which you hit on, yeah. 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 Right. What I was saying in a long-winded way was that I, I'm multi-generic. So if someone offers me a film, uh, as long as it's not, you know, the Human Centipede 6 or something, <laughs> uh, I, I am susceptible to offers. Uh, but so after Turkey Shoot was reviled by critics... Well, it was reviled before it came out in the theaters. It was there was outrage after the screening, and it got into the papers and uh, and and so forth. So there were people saying, "Ah, his career's over," because it was a fairly jealous industry in those days. There were lots of opportunities and a lot of people looking for them, um, a lot of competition. But two producers who had seen the screening of Turkey Shoot thought, "My, this guy can do action." Let's get him for BMX Bandits. Now, I could have said that about five minutes ago, and you would have got an answer to your question. But, <laughs> that's uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, so I said, great, love it. Uh, and, yeah, I loved working with the kids. Uh, Nicole was wonderful. I've uh, written about her in my book, and uh, she she's a natural, and I knew that she was going to be uh, a star one day that a vehicle would arise that would uh, you know make her a star. BMX Bandits wasn't that vehicle, but it 
it ensured that she never stopped working from the moment that the film industry saw BMX at the film the Australian Film Industry Institute Awards, uh, where it got a yeah you know, she should have got a nomination. But uh, David Argue, you know, the the smaller of the two um, uh, comic crooks, uh, he got a, a best supporting actor nomination, but didn't get it. But anyway, I, I the opportunity to uh, to do BMX and and at my suggestion, I said. Let's not do it in the docks of, of an industrial area of Melbourne, Port Melbourne. Why don't we you, you, yeah, let's show let's let's make this more international by using a backdrop that the world will respond to as well as Australia, uh, namely the harbor and the northern beaches of Sydney. So let's move the whole thing up to Sydney and um, and I will rewrite the action scenes for the best locations. I will put BMX bikes where BMX bikes are not meant to be, down water slides at the Manly water slide area, uh, through a shopping mall, um, uh, causing pizza to fall on people, uh, and you know, generally do everything that kids would love to do and do a, make it in a, in a film in which there are no parents. I mean, there's a parent figure in the cop, but basically no parents. And so we don't deal with that issue, and we just deal with the kids on their own. And that really, I think, resonated with the audience in Australia and the, perhaps also in America. So uh, all I, what I saw when I, yeah, was an opportunity to, to, to make, you know, an uplifting, uh, fun, um, colorful film that would sell well because you know i am also driven by the fact that films have to make a profit and in my day if your film didn't make a profit it was hard for you to get the funding for another one uh, so my first film uh, well my first documentary cost you know eight thousand uh, dollars and uh, you know I, I i i sold it at a small profit and uh, and so we went on from there. And uh, obviously, the amount of profit you make on a movie is dependent upon the skill with which it is distributed, and then the skill with which you've constructed a contract that prevents them robbing you blind. <laughs> a clause in the financing contract is, we'll give you the money to make this film, but you must understand we're going to rob you blind. Now, I have received uh, a, a small profit share from BMX bandits, uh, but not what I deserve. But that's just me. <laughs> so I naturally wanted to bring BMX bikes into Frog Dreaming. And so I did, because they weren't necessarily there. And I thought, well, let's have the kids. Yeah, he's a bike enthusiast. And, uh, you know, let's have the kids pursue him on their bikes, not just jump in cars with their parents. And so... I was able to put a another thread into the pursuit of Cody. You know, there's the, the avuncular cop, um, uh, but he is preceded by all the kids uh, who've been watching him uh, on their bikes. And uh, so then I was able to do shots so that the vehicle goes over the camera, bikes go past the camera, another vehicle goes over the camera. Uh, and if you can get that happening in a snappy way, the shot holds. And my the justification for risking a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar Panaflex Gold uh, uh, as the you know vehicle drive shaft passes over it, 
was justified. <laughs> I had miscalculated and not carefully measured uh, the, where the top of the camera was when we, we dug it into the ground and uh, uh, where the drive shaft would pass over it, provided it you know, was squarely in the middle, um, then um, all would be well. And luckily it was. <laughs> Having just rewatched uh, Frog Dreaming uh, two days ago, uh, just really impressive. Just just between BMX Bandits and Frog Dreaming just the last week or two, just the amount of great camera work just with bike action. Really impressive. Like it's really it's the, both of them are such so well directed as far as the action is concerned. You could really like tell that you were not an amateur. No, no, I've always had an eye. You know, I had an eye from yeah, you know, fifteen with an eight millimeter camera, and uh, you know, I made my first. I made a twelve minute film called The Chase, which allowed me the practice to see. You know, ooh. Um, if you look at it with a slightly low angle you know, with fo foreground foliage ooh, and people run past, that's a more interesting image than people just running past and the camera horizontal. Uh, so it's, um, okay, I'm catforming myself. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. This is Tuxedo, aren't you? Yeah, she's an 18-pound cat. We have a 20-pound cat as well. <laughs> I'd love to make a cat movie, actually. And someone should fund me to make the ultimate cat movie because uh, I have two cats. They're, they're half-sisters. They have a very interesting relationship. Uh, and they're loving and they squabble. Uh, and they explore the various parts of the garden and they do silly things. So, uh, but I... I, I yeah, I, I guess I should not really end my career with a cat video, uh, but uh, can't can't be uh, any worse I, than Cats I, the Musical. <laughs> oh no, no, that that's a career ending. Well, I, don't, I hope he has it hasn't ended his career, but nah. he's actually a very good director. He is, uh, he is. Yeah, I loved it. I I just saw the trailer and I I, I flinched, uh, <laughs> and you know uh, I, I I could not. I, I said, no, I don't think I have the stomach for this. I, I think this all, this looks like it could develop into torture. Uh, but uh, anyway. Um, oh, so I, much fun. Uh, oh, well, look, I, 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 I jest. But uh, anything with Meryl Streep in it gets my vote. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I should watch it. And the music is fine. I remember seeing it on the stage. And that's sure. where it should never have been a movie. No. What movies would you say most inspired you i mean you you talked about you know having this this diversity in approach to to how you make films so i guess specifically with the kind of movies that we're talking about so like bmx bandits and and the quest what what movies do you feel like inspired you in your approach to making those movies hmm. um i suppose the kids movies that i saw so i found most kids movies growing up a bit sort of pathetic. Uh, they were they were so middle class and uh, patronizing to the kids. Uh, uh, so, sure, I would watch them, but uh, uh, I'm just trying to think of it. You know, there were so many films that were regarded as suitable for kids that I saw. Uh, 
that wouldn't necessarily qualify as kids' movies. But, uh, you know, I saw an awful lot of war movies growing up because I'm a child of uh, the World War II generation. And uh, our father's war was, you know, dominated the culture. Movies, TV, comics, you know, documentaries dominated the culture of England in the, 20, in the two decades that followed World War II in which I grew up. Uh, so I naturally went to a lot of war movies, and I was attracted, therefore, to make um, uh, some war movies, and I've made three. I'm just, just trying to think if there's a kid's movie that in some way attracted me. I suppose, yeah, I, I would have to say that I was not necessarily attracted to the idea of making films about children. I was, it, it, I was attracted to the idea of making an adventure film w that starred children and that, that involved... In effect, what uh, uh, yeah, adventure and adult uh, and action sequences that could also be performed by adults. And and I'm going to argue that maybe that approach, maybe that mentality, is why. I mean, you're you're sitting there trying to think of children's movies that were patronizing and that you didn't like, and you can't come up with a title. But we're here talking about movies that you made decades ago that still have an audience. And and maybe that right there is the reason why, because you didn't approach them as kids' movies, but you approached them as action movies with kids. Well, I I I, I thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> You're right, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, you know, I love cinema and uh, I, I love, you know, recorded drama uh, and uh, of all kinds. Um, and so I approached every film uh, thinking about what genre it is in, what its target audience is expecting. And so I've done that with my horror comedies. So, you know, that it, it, I, I, I studied the form uh, and then use my instincts as to uh, how I tweak the content slightly to give it something slightly different. Uh, there is a group of you know of uh, people, young people that I've encountered, and I am currently lending them double bills from D DVDs. So they they gather on weekends and they're where you know, in one of their homes they will watch these double bills. They're 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 all. Film enthusiasts who uh, say we just want to see something different, and of course you can find just about anything on on the web these days. But there's nothing like you know a well-produced DVD of something that is very hard to find on the web. So I gave the, the previous double bill was Man from Hong Kong and uh, Jokimbo, Kurosawa's Jokimbo, the, the 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 movie that. Sergio Leone ripped off for a fistful of dollars. Have you seen it? I have. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> now Kurosawa's. Yeah. So your Jimbo is yeah still a great film. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so they were knocked out by it. They loved it, and these are twenty-year-olds, you know, and they love both films. And one is a nineteen you know sixty-one film, and the other is a nineteen seventy-five film. And so, yeah, I just got the copies back. So I've given them my next serve, which is Turkey Shoot and the follow-up to Yojimbo, Sanjuro, which is slightly more comedic, but still yes. a good deal of dark humor in it. Um, and if they like that, then, you know, maybe they need to move further into the world of Kurosawa. Um, 
because say you if you start them with the seven samurai then you know that might be three hours too much you know uh and too much japanese cultural texture until you're into it till you have an appetite for it but if you like you know your jimbo if you like yeah sanjuro uh you know then maybe you're ready for the previous one the one that started it let's say with seven sure. samurai seven samurai is one of my top three favorite films of all time and it's well, one that i can't watch often um i i watch it maybe once every five years and it's like i know i can be a home home alone i got a bottle of sake and i watch seven samurai and i ball i cry because it's i i find yeah. the whole experience to be just perfection from start to finish well, and, I, and I don't think of myself as a pretentious film person. I just, no, no, that no, film it, has always resonated with me. No, that's wonderful. It resonates yeah. with you. And, and you know, I, I, I may sound a little academic when I talk about films, and I, but I'm still emotionally engaged mm-hmm. with films. I have this sort of schizoid brain where half of me is critiquing the film subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, you know, perks, it, it bursts through occasionally. Uh, but the other half is getting into the story and following the characters. But it's just, you know, I've always sort of you know, found uh, I get double the pleasure, shall we say, double the fun. Uh, I have to ask possibly the most boring question of all time, which is, do you have a favorite film? In what genre, you see? Yes, there oh, it is. You. There's the answer. Some people just have one. It, it's true. I don't understand those people, but some people do have one. So I'm I'm kind of curious if if I said like what was the what's the first one of the genre that would come to mind? Do do you have yeah. one or two that you just kind of throw out there? I'm just kind of I'm just it's so curious. Yeah, and, and again, then within genres there are some mm-hmm. genres, then there are eras. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, there are great westerns of the 30s and the mm-hmm. 40s and the 50s. And, uh, and so forth. Uh, so, do I pick a great Western? Well, uh, obviously the Wild Bunch. Okay. Uh, but not the only one. Sure. Uh, no? uh, and I I like the classical romantic um, gunfight at the OK Corral. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... I, I, I I mean, obviously, Tombstone is another telling of the tale, and and there have been other tellings that have been, let's say, more realistic to what the actual gunfight was was really like, and and I think um, that great uh, British director uh, who did he he made a gunfight at the the OK Corral film as an independent guy, uh, Alex Cox. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. He made an interesting, you know, analysis of the the politics and the the back behind the scenes that was going on with in the relationships uh, and the politics of the district. So that was an, a, a, that was interesting too. But I, I get emotionally involved in films. I, films can make me cry, um, not very often, um, and sometimes I just cry at excellence. And I suppose mm-hmm. that is what uh, you experience with the seven samurai whenever uh, you see it again w- when are you next due for a good week uh i i've been really craving it in fact oh, you um, need one obviously it's post-covid uh, 
this year I'm trying to do 52 films I've never seen before. You know, like one a week, and I'm I'm almost done. I've got I've got three more, <laughs> three more, but I'm trying not to rewatch comfort films until I'm done with the 52. Okay. And so I'll be done with that in the next week or two. And I've already pulled Seven Samurai and the Manchurian Candidate off the shelf and put it by the DVD player because I'm ready for both of those. Those are like, those are my two favorite along with John Carpenter's The Thing. So, you know. Incidentally, read the Manchurian Candidate. Uh, Seven Days in May is uh, an interesting uh, film about a near coup. Funny about that. Mm -hmm. How easy it was. Uh, you just, you know, and we've yet to learn what elements of the military were ready to step in, uh, who had been primed to do so. All of this will be, uh, will come out, whether it makes any difference is another matter, but it will come out. Uh, and uh, I think we're, we're seeing, yeah, the scope of the investigation widening. Uh, and we'll see if it survives beyond November. I hope it does. <laughs> I know that we could talk to you forever about film. Not uh, a good idea. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> maybe for Probably you, not. for us, I think we're going doing well. But before we let you go, I need to say these words. I wanted to be Cody Walpole as a oh, child. Good. I had a The Quest poster on my wall as an 11-year-old. And just spending this time with you, uh, talking about this is such a treat. Uh, oh, I, I I can't express how much this means to me. So thank you so much for for giving us your valuable time. It really it means the world to I us. Whether my time is really that valuable anymore, but <laughs> valuable to me. Uh, we, and we find great value in it. <laughs> yes. No, no. Well, I look. I value my time left on this earth and wish to see many more films and. Goodness knows, I'd love to make another one, but I'm, I'm past my use-by date, uh, apparently. But, you know, uh, yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to always to talk to people who love film and, uh, uh, and particularly love my films. Now, I'm just trying to think which of my films that you haven't seen that you should see. Well, let's see, you've got 67, 65 of them? Well, no, that when you count the 12 television series. Oh, okay, that's true. Yeah. Episodes of, which you don't need to review. Uh, it depends. If you're, if you're a pop culture uh, historian, you can deconstruct uh, episodes of Silk Stalkings, which I made in episodes of it in, in two. There's a show um, I haven't heard the name of in forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mitzi Capture, Rob Estes, uh, great lead cast. I love them. Uh, they loved me. When I left the show, they gave me a, a tote bag with me dead written on it, which was something that I said generally when there was uh, you know, a piece of scenery fell down or uh, <laughs> the actor is late because he's vomiting in the toilet. Uh, or whatever it was, obstacle of the day, tended to, on rare occasions, prompt uh, once a week, uh, prompt uh, that kind of response from me. And they liked it, and they got me a tote bag with you know, beautiful gold letters and small, and me dead. So um, anyway, this is definitely not a suitable podcast for children. So... <laughs> 
Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I hate a chat, as you know. Um, and if you find another of my films that you want to talk about, I will be happy to oblige you. I would like you to see Happy Face Murders. I, I put that on my list earlier today when I was looking up information. That is, that is, and I need to watch Turkey Shoot. So I've got, I'm walking away from this with two movies I definitely need to see. Okay. Well, you should also look at Night of the Demons 2. Night of the Demons 1 was one of my movies I hadn't seen. Uh, and so now that I know that you have directed the sequel to it, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. I will say that cover terrified me as a, <laughs> a, a relatively young child. You know, this is definitely, number, that was... Number one. Number, uh, number one. two. Number two. Oh, yes, Angela. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, it, a date night with Angela is no fun. Uh, and... Uh, so no wonder you were scared. Uh, <laughs> Which so, would have meant uh, normally that I would have gone to see the movie. Whatever reason, that was one of like two or three of the, the horror films that I did. The, the, the box turned me off from watching it. But it's definitely one that I've been trying to go back and rewatch movies that I was maybe too scared of she, as a kid. Yeah, something she was going to do to that popsicle. Uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> worry yes a definite worry okay enough of that um now everyone is suitably intrigued now <laughs> right lionsgate's gonna earn more money uh <laughs> my plug not that they had the brains to get me to remake night of the demons too but there again that's just me there again uh you want to plug your book one more last time before we yes. let you go shameless plug for this book $27.50, I think, is what you can get it for in Barnes & Noble. But it is the the, the 580-page black and white edition, which, you know, and it still costs you know, $27.50 in the shops, and I get about $3 out of that if I'm lucky. <laughs> um, the, the one I want you to buy uh, is the full-color edition, which I recently published uh through Ingram Spark, and you can order that from any bookshop. Um, and uh, but that is sixty dollars. But if you want all those, you know, over two hundred pages of color of, of pictures, if you want them in color, that's what you're going to have to get. But the hardcover uh, it makes a really good coffee table book, and, uh, and people, uh, you know, Facebook me and say I I bought it, and it is the most popular coffee table book for visitors to the house because it's it's very snackable you you can <laughs> read it in depth or you can flip through the pages and just look at the pictures i mean i i gave it to um my 92 year old neighbor uh whose comment to her you know daughter and and, and son-in-law was you have a very interesting neighbor <laughs> good i i think that's that's the, the, the wisdom uh that i will uh, i will embrace uh so thank you very much and i you know happy to hear from you again thank you so much we really appreciate absolutely. it absolutely thank you so much so that was our interview with brian trenchard smith uh again just an absolute delight to talk to him 
uh, just just an encyclopedia of film history and film knowledge. And I walked away from the conversation with a, a list of films that you probably heard uh, that, you know, he recommended some of his own films, some other movies. And unfortunately, the one thing that podcasting doesn't allow is that it was a Zoom call. It was a video call. And watching him in this picturesque garden in his backyard and some of the, the visual stuff that we uh, got to enjoy throughout that conversation was just an absolute delight. Can't thank him enough for his time. What a charming gentleman. Oh, God, yes. Could you tell that I was starstruck? Yes, I could. Especially early on. I think even the listeners can tell via the audio. Um, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it, it, it just blew me away. And it's one of those things where he had a movie, right, that is exceptional and was a, a major part of my childhood. We talk about it. I definitely want wanted to get as much information as possible. But it also has made me re-examine BMX Bandits. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next episode. But looking at his other works as well, um, I have collected quite a few of them. I've watched quite a few of them. I don't want to get into detail about them now, not the time. But I'm just so excited to have kind of been a part of that. And just getting to talk to him, even just on a lark, just was like, hey, should we try reaching out to this guy? And within three days of reaching out to him, we were talking to him. Like, how does that happen? It doesn't. It doesn't happen. How does that happen? (laughs) That is not going to happen. Uh, with any other directors that we may want to reach out to, I'm afraid. But there we go. Uh, so, Rafe, two weeks. Yes. In two weeks, we are going to have our BMX Bandits intermission. And then uh, during that, we're going to discuss any of our second opinions that we might have had about the film. We're going to, again, talk about the second edition of the Kids on Bikes role-playing game Kickstarter, our plans for the future of this podcast, and what movie that we are going to be watching. And our ever-popular draft picks. And our very popular draft picks. You're absolutely right. And the other thing, too, about the draft picks is now when we stat our draft picks, we will be able to stat them with the second edition rules. That's right. Which Which I'm incredibly excited about. (laughs) Incredibly excited. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's going to be very cool and, and certainly is going to enhance that experience altogether. So until then, you can email us at the Never Say Die Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Never Say Diecast. We still have a Twitter account. Because Twitter still exists, kind it's of. Still, it still exists. <laughs> at least at the time of this recording. <laughs> at the time of this recording, and it is at Never Say Diecast. Uh, thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, which it's so good to hear again. And uh, Megan Daly for our show artwork. And remember, even if six or more months pass between recording sessions, never say die. I'd say especially if six or more months pass, never say die.